This is a conversation with Australian immunologist Peter Doherty. Peter's famous for his breakthrough research on killer T cells, and he's more accomplished than I can really do justice to here. Suffice it to say, he's an Australian of the Year recipient, he won a Nobel Prize, and we filmed this interview in a very large building named after him. He's also an accomplished author and brings over 50 years of experience in science to the conversation. We discuss immunology, science and politics, and existential risks. I'm Shane Farnsworth, and this is the Escape Sapiens podcast. If you enjoy these conversations and want to help support me, the best way you can do so is by liking, sharing, and subscribing. And now, I'm pleased to bring you Peter Doherty. I hope you enjoy. Escaped Sapiens. That's my basic training, is in veterinary science. So, mm-hmm. yeah. so you're often dealing with large animals. Why did you decide to transfer across? Into I was going to save the world, world for by producing more food. You know, this was back in the 1960s, 50s and 60s. And so that's what I was going to do. I didn't want to be a doctor because I didn't want to sit in a doctor's office listening to people whine. And that was a decision made as a boy at the age of 16. And cows can't complain. When I was, no, totally zero empathy. And, uh, you know, basically, it was a different time, you know. The, but if you had no empathy, why did you want to save the world? Oh, Methodism. I was, I was brought up in Methodism, which is, you know, a, a sort of a, a, a service type of Christianity, mm-hmm. basically. You know, the Methodists hived off from the uh, low church of England to basically stop people drinking themselves to death and ruining their lives. So uh, if you're a Methodist, you didn't drink and you didn't dance. Mm. Yeah, that was basically... But so it wasn't ego? Uh, it probably was, you know, but who knows? <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. It wasn't really. Because I had no thought of winning Nobel Prizes or any of that. I mean, you wouldn't become a vet. I'm the only vet to have ever won a Nobel Prize. Really? Yeah. Is, is there, there's obviously then no Nobel Prize in veterinary medicine or anything along those No, lines. no. I mean, there's no Nobel Prize in mathematics. I mean, there's no Nobel Prize mm-hmm. in lots of things. No Nobel Prize for geologists. Or, I mean, sometimes they can work them into... Mm-hmm. I mean, climate change, obviously. Mm-hmm. There are... There's, I mean, it's physics, chemistry, medicine in the sciences. Then they added the Swedish Banks Prize for Economics in the 1960s. The banks bought their way into the Nobel Prize, which made the Nobel Prize worth a lot more money. Mm. But it's treated as a science, you know, it's a dismal science, economics. So, so before we started, you were, we were talking about Fauci. And yes, uh, yes. The, the sort of attacks you get on Twitter. I've known Tony a long time. I mean, he's a, a very smart guy. Um, um, pretty good scientist and um, and a good doctor, I think, and mm. generally committed human being to try and make things better. He's he's been running National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, I think, since the 1980s. He's what? worked with multiple presidents, including Republican presidents, got along very well with them until Trump came along. Mm. And he's just a very effective and uh, at getting things done. Why do you think he became so attacked? I mean, you see... Well, he was standing up there and, and uh, if not contradicting Trump, correcting him. And there are a whole lot of people who thought Trump was God. And, I mean, we just thought he was a f***wit, and a, a con man and a liar, which he is. Mm. And uh, basically, but um, Fauci was required to deal with this guy as president of the United States. Mm. I, I don't know how he stood it. I mean, but basically he did. Though he backed off lately, and um, uh, his uh, offsider um, was handling a lot of it. Hmm. Do, you, do you think that 
politics has become way more divisive today. I mean, I can interview you also as an octogenarian. And <laughs> politics is very polarized. I, I think, uh, and I, I'm for various reasons, but it's it's also the the idea that the, I mean the media has also become very polarized, and the idea of a media organization. I mean, some media organisations are simply now propaganda organisations for a particular political view, mm -hmm. and uh, and they're toxic. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and Trump constantly disparaged um, the legitimate media. I mean, papers like New York Times, Washington Post, um, National Public Radio in the United States, and so forth. That that was fake news. Mm -hmm. Actually, the Knowledge Wars, the book that I wrote in 2015. I didn't. I didn't use the term fake news. I, I sort. I used invented constructs, <laughs> but it's basically fake news. Mm. And, and basically, there's a very good little book on it by a man called Harry Frankfurter, and I think he's a Harvard philosopher, and uh, it's called On Bullshit. And basically, that's what Trump is. He's about bullshit. And and Frankfurter makes the point that bullshit is actually worse than lies. Why? Because bullshit seduces you into a particular view. Lie, a lie doesn't necessarily do that. I and mean, you may tell a lie because you don't want to hurt someone's feelings or various things. But, but bullshit is a de deliberately a seductive act. Do you think, so Trump mentioned various uh, proposed cures that were in the media at various points. Do you think because he was a proponent of them, they were shut down. No, he has a massive ego, and 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 he's totally narcissistic, and and basically he was providing the solution mm -hmm. that the experts couldn't provide, and so we we had hydroxychloroquine and so forth, which you know wasn't uh, an unreasonable idea at the beginning, considering his mode of action. But really, all the clinical trials were done; it was shown not to do anything useful, and so he he was, but he was providing the solution. The great Trump. And he did, uh, and I think Fauci obviously pushed him to this, he did set up Operation Warp Speed to develop vaccines fast, and that was good. And, uh, and I think uh, it's interesting that a lot of the people who are pro-Trump sort of ignore that fact that it was Trump who really pushed this forward mm. uh, by providing the funding for it. So uh, I think it was just a very difficult interaction. And Trump is a totally, and we've never seen a politician quite like that. Not right. at that level. Yeah. What about, so people are also fairly divided when it comes to uh, anti-science. So for example, you might see on, in, on conservative sides, people who, are, uh, who question climate change. Whereas on the left, you might see yeah, people so who are anti-GMO. I think it's, you know, I think the word conservative has been hijacked, quite frankly. I think the Republican Party you could say was the conservative side of American politics for a very long time. But when, with regard to science, the Republicans were often the best supporters of science because what they saw was that it earns money. And it's also, it's, it does the job that right-wing politicians do in the United States. Uh, it, they take public money and they transfer it to their friends. And a lot of their friends are running companies that uh, science you know, pharmaceutical companies are their friends. The people who are making the stuff, the scientists buy are their friends. I mean, because they're business, it's big business. And also they, they were intelligent and they saw that innovation mm -hmm. is really the United States' great strength. 
And even uh, when Trump became president, Trump tried twice to cut the budget of the National Science Foundation and the National Institutes of Health, which are the two big government budgets that work through competitive peer review. And both times the Republican Congress turned it back. And the reason they turned it back is they know that this, this earns money. You know, if you look at, at um, uh, Silicon Valley, there's massive wealth transfer from pub the public to the private sector at that level. If you look at Silicon Valley, it was largely funded by Department of Defense and Department of Energy contracts. And so, you know, they're smart enough to wreck, or they have been, I'm not sure about the current Republican uh, group, but they're smart enough to recognize that this is a source of America's prosperity and dominance globally. And basically, if they give that up, they're really, uh, they don't have anything because the Chinese can produce stuff much faster and much cheaper, quite frankly. They've given up a lot of that manufacturing uh, because people, Americans, made money out of it. That's why it was done. I mean, they threw all their workers under the bus and, and uh, you know, we love globalization, we're the good guys, but, but basically they threw their own workers under the bus. And they're very angry, uh, but they identify, uh, a lot of those people identify the reason wrongly. And they, they don't identify the people who actually did it. You know, a lot of those people who run big industries, who transferred them to China, they don't run a Democrat. Right. And so as an advisor, as a scientist, what do you think your role is then in politics? Do you, do you, do you think scientists should take a more active role? I think scientists need to be involved in public communication as best they can. Uh, I think we all should be. Um, well, you can certainly talk to politicians. The problem, though, is you can become captured by the political process. Mm -hmm. And so I think for those who have those abilities, and Tony Fauci is one, to negotiate that process and do it, in a, in a, do it well, uh, then, uh, and that requires, certain, I think, a certain type of mind and a certain type of uh, set of skills. I, I think it's great they're involved, I mean, if they don't get involved. I mean, in the past, particularly the Republican Party in the United States had some very, very, some terrific champions for science in the Congress. And the thing was that when I first went to the United States, which is in the 1970s, I was impressed by how well they worked across the aisle. Because the committees are all bipartisan, so you've got um, ways and means and so forth. They're all they've all got Democrats and Republicans on them, but the chairmanship of the committee switches to the majority party in the in the House, and so uh, so basically, I thought that worked extremely well. And then when you saw C-SPAN, which televises a lot of you know, a public television channel, which actually broadcasts quite a number of committee hearings, or used to, uh, then you would see that these people were actually working together. Mm. So there's all the, the theatre of politics. But now it's all, the theatre has taken over. And so I don't think of what many people describe as conservative politics as, as conservative. I think of it as reactionary or regressive politics. But do you think the theatre has really actually taken over or it's just that it's more present in our lives because we're connected on I social media and so on? Considering some of the people who are being elected to the Congress, yes, the theatre is much more, much stronger because a lot of these are people of no substance. 
Mm. And you can see that. I mean, they're, they're crazy. I mean, they buy into these QAnon theories. The QAnon, as far as I'm concerned, the basic, it's the, uh, have you heard of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion? No. This was a document that was circulated by the Nazis. Uh, and all the, a lot of the things that are attributed to the deep state are actually just taken straight from the protocols of the elders of Zion. It's, it was anti-Semitic, obviously. The deep state thing is not necessarily anti-Semitic, it's anti-government, but that's where it comes from. I mean, it's the same wording, almost. What and, and it was done by some crazy guy, and it, all these crazy people have found a home there. Hmm. When, it, when it comes to conspiracy, when it comes to people who are pushing things that are anti-science, what are the limits to debate? Like, you know, for example, should you jump in the trench to fight against uh, flat earth uh, or... or um no, I mean, there's no point in trying to fight against flat earth. I mean, you know, the people who are convinced of flat earth are not going to be convinced of anything. A lot of the anti-vaccine... The anti-vaccine thing is... is it was, at least, a... Um, it was a diversity people people who've had a bad experience with a vaccine you know you know mm -hmm. any medical procedure uh, is a risk mm -hmm. there's a risk factor to it and some people have sometimes had bad experiences or their kids have had bad experience or it can be just the the kids whining and whinging after the vaccine dies um, it could be that they say um, I will determine what happens to my child, government will not do it, and all this sort of thing. So there's all sorts of different levels of thinking. But a lot of it's become linked up now with conspiracy theories. And, and one of the things, for instance, that we've seen in the anti-vaccine thing uh, with COVID vaccines, uh, which were a novel technology, it had been around for quite a while, but never rolled out as a major vaccine initiative. Uh, firstly, enormous amounts of disinformation, but also, you know, there, there is some risk and some people, and it was um, particularly some of the risk was certainly not predicted, the uh, myocarditis thing with younger males, and there's a risk-benefit equation. It's not, to my mind, that clear what that risk-benefit equation is currently, because the vaccines are not very well matched to the virus. So there's a lot of subtlety to it, but there's no subtlety to this position, and, and, uh, and it, it, it's sort of consolidated. Uh, a lot of that, um, of that sort of attitude, and then of course the internet reinforces all these things, and and people find each other, and these conspiracy theories build on themselves. What do you mean when you say that the vaccine is not well matched to the virus? Oh, well, the virus has been changing. I mean, the I the, the vaccine, the, there is an Omicron variant in the vaccine that's used. The newer vaccine here, which hasn't really been used very much here, and in uh, and in the United States, the. The, the American one has, um, has the original Wuhan strain virus, and the virus and, and no longer makes antibodies that neutralize the virus, plus um, a, another, another, another product against Omicron BA5. Mm -hmm. Now, we've moved on past BA5 already, but, um, and the Australian uh, vaccine that we have here at the moment is a Moderna vaccine, which has an Omicron BA1 variant. So I'm not really sure what those vaccines are doing, and it, they're not well matched, mm -hmm. the current strains. Now, that matching matters a lot with the antibody responses, which, what, which is what stops transmission. Mm -hmm. So they're not stopping transmission much at all, I think, uh, whereas the last virus they stopped transmission fairly effectively with was the Delta strain. 
but they do seem to be keeping Peter Bell out of hospital, and that may be the T cell response, part of the response that I studied, mm -hmm. which uh, is not under such strong selective pressure. And it's and because it, the the actual bits of bits of the virus that are seen by the immune system with that response often come from very conserved proteins like proteases, which have a function. Mm -hmm. And it's not that easy to change a protein structure if it has a function mm -hmm. uh, that, that actually does something within the cell. Whereas the function of the spike protein is simply to bind mm -hmm. to the receptor on the cell to get it into the cell. And there seems to be the, a number of ways that that spike can be changed and still work. Mm -hmm. And so this virus has changed much more than we expected. I want to, uh, I'll get into your research and immunity uh, in a little bit, but I just wanted to push down this uh, direction a little bit further. Um, what's your view when it comes to uh, forcing people to have the vaccine? So for example, children uh, have to have the vaccine. Uh, I, I'm generally not a great fan of vaccine mandates. I think if, um, and, and most of the medical profession is not actually, a great fan because of the sort of because of the sort of things that have happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's certainly the case that the vaccine mandates that were brought in did cause uh, people to get vaccinated when they probably wouldn't have, and that was a probably useful at reducing transmission up to about the delta phase. But I'm not sure it's been much use to reduce transmission since then. Mm -hmm. What it has been useful for, I think. Um, is to still keep people out of hospital, mm -hmm. which is important because there's been a tremendous pressure on our medical system. So, uh, but vaccine mandates, I, I think you have to be very careful in mandating mm -hmm. uh, this sort of thing. Yeah. Do they lower also the incidence of long COVID? It, it's marginal. I, I, it, it, um, it was working, and again, with the earlier strains where it was giving more protection, it, I think, I tried reviewing the literature on it. It's a very complicated literature for all sorts of reasons, partly because a lot of it is self-reporting mm -hmm. and partly because no one has gone into long COVID. And I think there are several different types of things happening. I mean, for instance, people are very sick with COVID or very sick with flu and they go on a, on a vent, ventilator mm -hmm. in an ICU. There's a phenomenon called post-ICU syndrome, PICS. So I think some of the things that we're seeing where the, there's just damage is done and it's damage that can't be repaired. Mm -hmm. And so I think with some of what we're seeing with long COVID is picks. Mm -hmm. But then there's the other phenomenon where people don't get, they get sick, but not all that sick. They don't go to hospital, but then they have this long debility. Now that's the long COVID. Mm -hmm. but, but a lot of the long COVID data doesn't distinguish between those two. And I think they're different and the, the, the mechanisms are probably different. So, so I think, firstly, there's the fact that there's no good classification of it into different types. And then the, the other factor, though, with it is that a lot of long COVID is self-reported. Mm. And when you get into self-reporting, you do get into various complexities mm. that, that are difficult to really analyze. But overall, uh, early on, from, you know, the, the Americans don't have a public health system the way we do or the British. The British National Health System, for instance, was giving very good uh, mm -hmm. data on what was happening because they command all the hospitals in the UK and they, they bring them all in as research hospitals. We can't do that because we've got all these different states and 
it, it's hopeless actually. The Australian system is very siloed mm -hmm. you know, on the basis of federal, state, all sorts of things, mm -hmm. which makes things like that very difficult. We do some things very well, but, but not that. But the Americans have a massive public health system called the Veterans Administration. The Veterans Administration treats uh, any per in for life, they, they look after the health care for any permanent member of the Army, Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard, the um, United Space Public Health Service Commission Corps. Uh, these guys, uh, these doctors, uh, many of whom I knew as researchers at uh, Bethesda or, or in Colorado or somewhere as full-time researchers, and you'd normally walk in and see them dressed in blue jeans. They were required to wear, under one of these Surgeon Generals, were required to wear a uniform every week, once a week. And so you walk in to see this guy who you usually see in blue jeans and sneakers or shorts, and he's dressed like an admiral. <laughs> really, looks like a naval uniform. And the, uh, and the other one is the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric, uh, the NOAA, the Weather Service. They're also a commissioned corps of the United States. So they have very good so health care. So <laughs> they have very good health care and they have very good data. But it's, main, it's heavily skewed towards males and, of course, older mm. people. Right. But it's a very good data set, actually. And some of their data has been very good on long COVID. At the moment, I think... Uh, vaccination may be protecting you 15%, 20%. I, it's not clear, but it's not giving you great protection. But Omicron, I think, is probably causing less long COVID, but I'm not sure about that either. I've, I've been taking time out from it a bit, and I'm, I'm going to go back to it later in the year, and I'll probably, I may write another book about this whole, mm. this whole I've you know, already published that um, Insider's Play Gear book, mm -hmm. and I've been writing these online pieces but I may write another book about, you know, where are we with this or the challenges facing us, because I think the way we've responded to COVID actually gives us a lot of insight into the limitations of our response in things like climate change. Hmm. Yeah. And I've been writing about that. This book is partly about that. Now that the dust has set, I, I mean, you, you're not sure where the future is going to go, but now that the, the dust has settled a little bit, which countries do you think actually did a good job? So it was I think so we really should look at that very carefully and do it very thoroughly. I think academics should do it because they go in depth. Mm -hmm. Or people who, who are in uh, the foundations or, or, or operations that, that go in depth and do analysis. Mm -hmm. And it should be free of any political influence or any bias. And so... Um, we should look at, 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 at the sociology, we should look at the mental health consequences, we should look at, the, at what different states did, because different states did different experiments. I mean, Sweden did one sort of experiment by staying open. Um, we shut down a lot, but then we opened up. Uh, the different American states did different experiments. The Washington state, for instance, was not that different from what was done here. It was, you know, they did a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, lockdowns and all the rest of it, whereas Florida and Texas did things completely differently. So I, I think we really should look at what was justified and what worked, if we can, if we can actually work it out. Um, I think we could probably come to some good conclusion, but I like people who are really intellectually strong mm -hmm. and, and, and working in their disciplines to actually give us those sorts of insights. Uh, whether that'll happen, whether anyone will fund it is another matter. But um, 
you know, I think probably some of the response here was a bit over the top. We were very scared. Firstly, everyone was scared because we had no vaccine. It was a new infection. It was killing people. Mm. And I think we also, everyone made the mistake of thinking, oh, well, we'll we get a vaccine, we'll be okay. But of course, that hasn't really happened. And, uh, and uh, I, I thought all along we shouldn't be pushing much harder for drugs. Mm-hmm. Because I know that but drugs would work and much less likely to be subverted, subverted. And that's the AIDS experience, actually. And so um, uh, it, uh, I think the, you know, the scientific community didn't get it all right by any means. Um, public health community didn't get it all right. I don't think, I think what the previous government did was pretty good uh, in the context that it was doing it. Um, I mean, you know, we, our institute has no role in the public health thing at all. We're, we're just a laboratory. We did the diagnostics for them and the genomics. And some of our epidemiologists uh, were contracted to, give, give, uh, to do models and so forth. But the, the real decisions about all this stuff are made in the public health community, mm-hmm. which in Australia is uh, state and federal. Uh, there are different state and federal administrations in it. You said before that you think that the current vaccines are something like 15% effective. Oh, long, against long COVID. Against long COVID. Oh, yeah. so not in, not in terms of... No, it's hard to know what the efficacy of them is at the moment. And they're certainly not very effective at stopping mm-hmm. transmission. But the, the, there's data and there's also the doctors themselves say they're still confident they're keeping people out, tending to keep people out of the hospital if people get boosted up. Mm. Yeah. So, so what have we learnt then? If, if you could you know, condense three years of uh, knowledge into... Well, we've learnt something that I already knew. That is the limitations of our technology. You know, we, we talk about medical technology. We talk about all technologies that we can solve everything by technology. But the example I use from climate change is uh, when did we last make it rain or stop raining? Okay, so th- this perception that everything can be solved with technological is simply an illusion, it's arrogance. I mean, we, we should try to solve these problems technologically. Climate change, we should try to solve it technologically. COVID and all the rest of it. But the, the, the perception that, that we can solve all these things is, is, is just an oversell. And, you know, people die. Right. I mean, if medicine could solve all the problems, people wouldn't die. Of course, that would create another enormous problem. So, so let me jump uh, to your work then uh, and work maybe back in this direction uh, towards the end. But I want to know, what is it that makes you most excited about working in immunology? What is, the, what is that beautiful aspect that makes you interested in the field? Well, I got interested very early on. You know, I trained as a vet, but uh, I was in, in the lab fairly early after, after, um, after, after graduation, and I was working on trying to understand infectious diseases initially of domestic animals, mm-hmm. and then that switched into basic medical research, which means I, I moved from being a sheep doctor to being a mouse doctor, an MD. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so really, um, so I've been trying to understand disease mechanisms and how the immune system works to handle infectious disease. And as you can imagine, that is very complex. And, and there are things, when I started out, we'd, you know, everyone talks about cytokines and chemokines and interferons. None of these things we knew, we didn't know they existed. I mean, we, there's been an enormous period of discovery over the last 50 years, particularly with molecular medicine. So what I've seen as I've tried to understand 
what an infection is, how it works, how it kills us, how we stop it killing us, and all the rest of it, how it debilitates. Uh, that, that has become in, inherently infinitely more complex as time went by, as we've discovered more and more mechanisms that are operating. And we will, I think, after one of the things that will happen after COVID is there's been some very, very good science done, but it's still being done. A lot of it's not published yet. We, we'll get a lot more insight into these, these issues, but we may not necessarily have solutions as a result of that insight. One of the things I'm really curious about is how the body stores information outside of DNA. And so when it comes to immune response, what I want to know is what's the difference between someone who is immune to a virus and someone who's not? Where is the information it's, stored? It's, it's basically stored in cells. I mean, it's, it's you know, in the brain you have a, you have a central processing unit, the brain, and, and basically naively, I mean, I started I, the first five years of my research career, I was basically working in neuropathology. So, you know, I have some brain stuff, and I, I could have gone that direction rather than the immune direction. But um, uh, so basically, you know, naively, we think of information being stored as a result of establishing networks mm-hmm. and, and then trimming those networks. There's all this axonal trimming goes on, so memory gets modified. But we think of it as a kind of hardwired system, right? Mm-hmm. The immune system is not hardwired at all. It has no central processing unit. So the, the, the basic cell, responding cell of the immune system are the lymphocytes. And they have receptors on which are highly specific and enormously diverse. So if you, when you get COVID, there'll be a few lymphocytes, B cells, the ones that make the antibody ultimately, that'll have a receptor for something on that virus. And they will engage, they'll become activated They'll engage with virus-infected cells, called dendritic cells principally. They'll become activated and they will multiply. They'll kind of clonally expand. As they clonally expand, they will differentiate. Some of them will become effector cells. For instance, with the antibody-forming cells, they'll become what's called a plasma cell, which is an end-stage cell, which will sit in our bone marrow and pump out antibodies. And some of them will become memory B cells. So memory in the immune system is at the level of individual cells. Mm-hmm. It's just we've got more of them and they're in a different differentiating state as a result of epigenetic effects. Mm-hmm. So basically, they're, they're more of them, they're gen- genetically somewhat different and they can be recalled to immunity. And the antibody-forming cells will keep on pumping out antibodies. The T cells, you have to actually recall them. They're, they're sort of dangerous cells because they kill other cells and you don't want a lot of them sitting around. So, so basically, it's, it's the, the immune system in some ways is much more complex than the brain and it's harder to research on in some respects because it's a disseminated system. Not only are these, is it in, at the level of the cell that memory works, these cells are, are in motion. Some are moving around more than others. Some are sitting. They're moving in and out of tissues. We don't, know, we don't even know how big the immune system is at any stage because it's very hard to measure what's happening. with the. Comp- you can measure the component in blood, but that's only a subcomponent. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's a, it's a very complex system. Some things we can never really, they have to be modeled basically. That's, uh, uh, most modelers are not very interested in actually modeling the immune system in that way though. It's very interesting. So if I understand correctly, we, our body has these cells, I think you said B cells, and they're, they're very diverse. 
Yes. And then uh, certain ones of those cells will match up with a particular you will virus. Say, you will say they will have a receptor on their surface, which will actually, within the antibody response, which will actually be equivalent to the receptor that's the antibody molecule itself. Mm -hmm. So the antibody response, you've got B cells to go to plasma cells, and you've got increased numbers of memory B cells. Mm -hmm. Some of these are circulating around the body. Some of them are sitting in tissues. Some of them are sitting in the lymphoid tissue, mm -hmm. the lymph nodes, the spleen and stuff. And, uh, but their product is the antibody molecule which circulates in the blood. And it's, it's, um, it's, it's, like you, it's equivalent to actually a gas attack, if you like. You produce all these molecules, you throw them out into the blood, they will be the ones that grab hold of the virus on first contact and stop it getting into a cell if it's a good match. The polio vaccine, measles vaccine, the, the, the viruses don't change much. So, but with COVID, the problem is the virus changes. And so, um, then you've got the T cells, which actually interact with modified proteins on the surface of the cell that have been modified by the virus, and they, uh, they kill the virus infected cells, for instance. So they, they sort of clonally expand. You get these killer cells out there, which will stop the infection by killing off the virus infected cells. Then a lot of those cells die off, the killer T cells. But because you get memory T cells that are expanded and differentiated, and they can be recalled more rapidly. And your Nobel work had to do with uh, this the, process. The recognition, basically. Uh, we, we the found T, the T killed we, we found that the, the, you know, you've got graft rejection. Mm -hmm. you, I get your kidney. We, we, we're very different in what's called our transplant molecules. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a whole lot of work done on this from the 30s, actually, in, in graft rejection, people studying skin graft rejection. We knew there was all these incompatibilities. We knew there was tremendous diversity in the system. And what we didn't know was what it was for. Mm -hmm. What we found is it's for presenting bits of virus to the immune system so that the, those immune T cells are targeted onto the cell. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the antibody molecules are targeted to the virus. Mm -hmm. The T cells are targeted to virally modified cells. I see. Yeah. So that's what we found, that T cells are targeted. And we found out what the histocompatibility system is for. Basically, it's not what they gave us the Nobel Prize for, but it's what we did find out. We found out why we had a transplant system. So it's a self-monitoring system, actually. But, but so the, the, t the killer T cells that you were working with, they will attach themselves to a cell and kill it. Yeah, they'll, 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 you can see movies of them. They'll uh, see a virus, these cells will come in, they will kind of grope it, yeah. and then they'll kill it. And they kill it actually by causing it to commit suicide. They actually activate the cell death pathway. You know, all, all cells are programmed to commit suicide. Mm -hmm. and, and when that goes wrong, due to mutation or something, you can end up with cancer. It's mm -hmm. one of the cancer mechanisms. So what the, the killer T cell does, it'll come in, and, and you can see these cells, they'll go onto the virus. And, and for a while, it will sort of all look pretty normal. And they're sort of groping it, if you like, mm -hmm. moving over it in a sort of amoeboid sort of way. And then suddenly, the cell that's going to be killed will go like that. So it's not, it's not that you just made a hole in the cell membrane, because if you do that, the cell blows up like that. But these cells go like that. And so, it, and um, it's, it's that's, that's what we found is the, is the recognition, uh, uh, how, how that recognition kind of happens. Is, is the point that if the cell was to just blow up, then you'd be distributing parts of the virus yeah, you, you actually, you could, but so what you actually do is that destroys the cell. But actually that still releases bits of virus. So a lot of the antibody responses against virus components 
and it's completely useless. I mean, if you make antibodies against con internal components of the virus, that has no protective effect at all. Mm -hmm. Unless those antibodies are on the surface, unless those molecules are on the surface of the virus or on the surface of the virus-infected cell, the antibodies you make against them are no use. In fact, that's one of the dangers of virus infections, that some of those antibodies you make will actually be cross-reacted with some of our own proteins. Mm -hmm. And that's where you get autoimmunity coming in. So the point is, because you're making a diversity of cells, some of those will trigger on the, your the, own yeah, tissues. I mean, and the, the, do you the, have to get rid of those? The or immune system, no. It, it's hard to, hard to get rid of them. In fact, you know, once you've got an autoimmune phenomenon set up, it's almost impossible to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. In fact, there's a tremendous amount of research done in that area to try and to say, you know, how could we turn these cells off? Mm -hmm. make, yeah, the immune system is, is, is balanced. Mm -hmm. It's balanced between dealing with foreign entities like viruses and bacteria and all the rest of it, and balanced so that it doesn't react against self, but it can be kicked over into reacting itself. And that's what you get with diseases like rheumatic heart disease or rheumatoid arthritis or these things where you, you've kicked the immune system over into starting to interact with our own tissues and you get autoimmunity. Um, multiple sclerosis is another one. With autoimmune skin diseases, you often see patches over the body. Is the, yeah, is the, the immune system localized in, in your body or why is it that you get no, patches? No, I think I'm not quite, uh, you know, I'm not really up in it, but if you're thinking of, uh, for instance, the roughness of the skin with lupus, so I think a lot of this is deposition of antibody antigen complexes Mm -hmm. that just don't get cleared. You can get a kidney disease, mm -hmm. immune complex disease, where the kid, these antigen, protein antibody complexes, complex with self or something else, are just accumulating in the kidney tubules and destroying your kidney function. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, th these are uh, terrible conditions, but much more common in women. Mm -hmm. And of course, long COVID is much worse in women. So there are links there. Why, why is that? Um, women make stronger immune responses than men on the whole. Um, it's, it's interesting. And uh, maybe it's something to do with trying to protect the fetus. Mm -hmm. yeah. But uh, women are much more susceptible to autoimmune disease in general. When I think of, when I picture the action of cells on viruses, a virus is very small compared to a cell sure. in, in my conception. So are there, can, can viruses get into tissue or, or find their ways into part, parts of your body that, for example, t killer T cells can't No, the killer, killer T cells will go into tissues. Mm -hmm. they, if, if, the, if there's something going on in, the, in, the, in a tissue and the, and the virus infected cell or the, the, the cells that are in there and responding are producing various chemokines or cytokines, they will signal to immune cells in the blood um, to stop uh, to really attach to blood vessel walls and extravasate from blood vessels. The cells, the lymphocytes can push through between cells mm -hmm. and go into tissues. In fact, the T cells are going in and out of tissues all the time. They're, they're um, you know, you've got a whole, a whole, you've got two circulations. Mm -hmm. You've got the blood. And the lymphatic. The, and the heart. Mm -hmm. But the lymphatic system, which is the drainage of the body, this is all the fluid that's been produced in tissues or has leaked out into tissues. Mm. So it drains back through the lymphatics and, and it's, there's no pump. I mean, the pump is our muscle activity. And, and, uh, and so that, um, and the lymphatics come back in through, you know, so if you inject a vaccine here, if, if, uh, it will go into the intramuscular space and into the lymphatic fluids. Lymphatics, either as free vaccine or in cells called dendritic cells, 
will pick it up. They will then carry it to the filter stations on the lymph system, which is the regional lymph nodes in your armpit. So your vaccine here, your, your regional lymph nodes are where the response happens because those dendritic cells that are carrying bits of the virus get trapped here. And then what happens, they, they send out signals, chemical signals, that recruit large numbers of lymphocytes into it. So you can see in an immune response, I mean, we did this in mice, obviously, but in germ-free mice or, or, you know, rel or in you know, relatively clean, pretty clean mice, uh, the, the lymph nodes can get massive very quickly because they suck in the lymphocytes out of the blood. You get what's called a lymphopenia. The numbers of white cells drop, drop, trying to find those rare lymphocytes which will actually react with this particular pathogen. So the response when you get a vaccine goes on here. That's why you can often get a sore arm or a sore armpit mm. and feel crap because you know, the, it's an immune response. So you're producing all sorts of molecules which are pretty toxic. Some of those molecules, because it's trying to get rid of this invader, some of those molecules will go in the blood to the brain that's why you feel sleepy or you feel you get a fever, all this sort of thing. So, yeah, and so, and there may even be neurogenic pathways too where the nerves themselves are being signaled. That's a much more difficult and complex area, a very interesting area, the sort of neuroimmunology. But it's pretty clear that if you've got stuff in the blood, it can be affecting centers in your brain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, um, so that's where, where your immune responses happen. Put tattoo ink in there. You, if you've got a green tattoo, you'll have green lymph nodes for life. Really? Or blue or red, you know. <laughs> I keep telling to, this, my, to my grandchildren, but they say they're still going to get tattoos. And God knows what it does to you medically. I mean, really, we don't know. Have you actually, I don't know if you've gone through and done dissections of people or anything like this, but... No, people have gone through and done And you can actually see the... Well, it's a classical experiment that was done in lab mice. I mean, people injected carbon black, mm. which is the black... That, that's why what a black t tattoo was. It was carbon. They injected carbon black into a uh, Indian ink, yeah. into a mouse, intradermally. Yeah. And, and that goes straight to your lymphatics. And the carbon gets trapped in your lymph node. And it sits in cells there for the rest of your life. So, and, and, you know, some of those tattoo inks, you don't know what the hell they are. Mm. They, they, can, they can sit there for the rest of your life. So medically, uh, there's some evidence that it can be doing significant damage. And of course, people point out, well, the Maori, the Maori have always had lots of tattoos and they haven't died. How do you know? Has <laughs> there a lot of Maori that didn't have tattoos? Mm. So, <laughs> so the, okay, something piqued my attention. You said that the lymphatic system doesn't have a heart. And so it's our movement that sort of pumps. No, it's not pump. No. Yeah, so that's why on a plane, you, your legs swell up. Right. It's lymphatic fluid. That's elephantiasis, you know, that terrible thing with the leg. Yeah. Yeah, that's because the filaria are blocking the lymphatics. And what about for someone who's paralyzed? So you have someone who's a quadriplegic or um, Yeah, well, basically, yeah, that's a good question. I've never really thought a lot about it, but they don't necessarily have enormous dependent swelling. But they're not walking, so they're not sort of mm. uh, pumping a lot of fluid out, I guess, also. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, I, and of course, a lot of them, are, if you're bedridden, that's not, not a problem. But um, yeah, I, I, I guess uh, I haven't thought about that a lot. I wonder no. if this is I'm why... I'm not a medical doctor, you see, so. Right. <laughs> well, I wonder if this is why when you're sitting at your desk for hours a day, whether that's yeah, like your added... Can swell. Your, your mm. ankles can swell, yeah. Yeah, you need to get up and walk around. I mean, the best thing you can do for your health 
uh, basically is, is move quite a bit. Mm. Uh, more you can move. I mean, you, you don't need to be doing it all the time. I've, I've been trying with standing desks and stuff, mm. but I'm not sure that's all that great. But, but it, it, it's just don't sit for too long. Mm -hmm. Get up, move around a bit, watching TV even. Get up, walk around and watch the TV while you're standing up. And, um, and do, you know, get some reasonable steps every day and all that sort of thing. But, yeah. but so killer T cells, they will detect, they will, they'll find a cell that is... But they're isn't interacting with a cell. So as a physicist, think about this. I mean, you've got, there's a whole physics of this, biophysics of it. You've got a cell with multiple receptors, yeah. all the same. You also can have secondary receptors, which will also help bind T cells together. And then you've got a virus infected cell which is probably bigger than the lymphocyte, maybe not. And it's got lots of modified bits of transplant molecule on itself. So what you've got is, is a situation where you've got clusters of molecules bringing other clusters together. So you get these capping phenomena, you get, you get coalescence. They come together into what the immunologists, I think, incorrectly call synapses. Mm -hmm. It's not really a synapse in the sense of a synapse in a nerve. But you, you'll get these sort of coming together. So, and we talk about affinity and avidity. Mm -hmm. I mean, the affinity of a molecule for another, for a, pro, a protein, an acceptor, ligand interaction or whatever, there, there's that binding affinity. Mm -hmm. But then you've got a situation where you have multiple lower affinity molecules binding to other low, lower affinity binding, which we call avidity. Mm -hmm. So the, the interaction between the T cell and the, and the virus infected cell is actually an exercise in avidity. And, and you know, there's a whole physics there, which I don't know if anyone's ever really tackled all that seriously, quite frankly. About how the chemical interactions actually No, how, take how that actual, that bonding, bonding mm -hmm. really works when you've got these multiple interactions and, mm -hmm. and what the, um, yeah, anyway, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not a biophysicist, but there, I mean, there is a field of biophysics, obviously. But, but so the, the, end, the end effect is that these, cell, these infected cells are being killed yeah. because they're the, they're the factories of the virus. So, so how much damage can actually be done by our own immune system to, to ourselves? I mean, Well, the same thing can happen if we react against ourselves. And, you know, I mean, Paul Ehrlich, the great immunologist, um, you know, he's talked of as the father of immunology. He won the Nobel Prize in about 1905 or something, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he talked about horror autotoxicus. Okay. Yeah. Now, most autoimmune disease, though, is not our killer T cells killing us ourselves. It's basically more what we call the helper T cell, which produces all sort of chemokines and cytokines and various molecules, and producing those molecules in, say, a joint. Mm -hmm causing inflammation, other cells to come in. Inflammation causes swelling, swelling causes pain. Because, you know, So arthritis. Yeah, arthritis, you know, you've got pain. All membranes have pain receptors in them. So, you know, if you distend membranes, you get pain. And swelling is, 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 is the cause of a lot of pain, yeah. Is there a trade-off between how infectious a virus is and how dangerous it is to someone once they've caught the virus? No, not necessarily. I'm some viruses are highly infectious, but they're not terribly pathogenic. Mm -hmm. So the current, I'd, I'd say COVID is really a highly infectious virus, but unless you're elderly, it's not terribly pathogenic in most people. 
Mm-hmm. The, the, the hooker is the long COVID thing for younger people because longer, younger people do get long COVID. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so, but you can, you, you, if you take the, take the, the coronaviruses, the beta mm-hmm. coronaviruses, between before 2000, or the coronavirus, before 2000 there were two coronaviruses circulating in humans, both of which cause common colds and flu. And you know they're one of a hundred among a hundred viruses that cause that sort of symptoms of all different types of viruses, and so um, after two thousand, there are five. Hmm. Something has changed, and and basically the original SARS virus, uh, which came across from bats to a little animal called a civet cat, hmm. to humans, basically in these live animal markets in China, that original SARS virus only infected, we, uh, for what we know, it infected about 8,000 people and about 10% of them died. Now, COVID, SARS-CoV-2, infinitely more infectious, but the real death rate, hard to know exactly, but probably more like 0.1 to 0.3%. So, you know, quite, quite low, but very targeted towards people who've got compromised immune systems, which is usually I mean, the compromise of age, for instance. Uh, there's another virus called MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syncytial. Again, it goes from, we think, from bats to camels to humans. It kills about 30%, but it's not nearly as infectious. So I think, I'd thought for a long time, that a highly infectious virus is highly lethal. That's Ebola. Mm-hmm. Ebola is you know, a terrible disease, highly infectious uh, from body fluids. People in Africa uh, early on often got it, and they still can happen, from the practice of, of the, if they die from what's called wet Ebola, they secrete a lot of this stuff, and then people kissing the corpse. Okay. And, and that was one of the reason, ways that people got Ebola. Well, Ebola is so infectious and so lethal that people re- pick it up very quickly. So we haven't had an Ebola pandemic. And we probably won't have as long as we've got reasonable public health. But if you've got a virus like COVID-2, which infects large numbers of people, and with lot, a lot of them, particularly younger people, doesn't make them particularly sick, so they're still moving around. This is an ideal mechanism for a virus to mm-hmm. spread. All viruses want to do in nature is survive, spread, and replicate, and so forth. That's the whole in- evolutionary imperative. Mm-hmm. Okay? They don't want to kill us. Some of them do. I mean, rabies, one of the ways it transmits is it kills you and then you're eaten by a dog that gets it or something. But so th- there's nothing stopping a virus which has a long latency period, uh, which is uh, respiratory, but which also kills like um, a body. Well, most of, you know, they don't, COVID doesn't have a long latency period. It's got an acute infection. Mm. And it, it, it's largely cleared, I think. Uh, we worry that some of the long COVID people are people who haven't cleared the virus properly. Mm-hmm. They've still got persistent infection. I mean, latent viruses, we've got a whole lot of latent viruses in us. Uh, the herpes viruses, uh, cold sores, Epstein-Barr virus, uh, shingles. These are, these are big viruses that go latent. But they don't change very much. And they've, they've been, they've actually, we've moulded those viruses over the thousands of years and they've moulded us. Mm-hmm. You know, so our immune system to some extent, reflects our interactions with viruses that are traditionally pathogens of us, particularly herpes viruses, I think. But so people talk about 
uh, the hope that eventually what we'll end up with is a, is a coronavirus which is much less lethal and which just becomes like the it common cold. It could well be that it could be Omicron. There's a big there's a debate about whether Omicron is less, less lethal than the original strain. Some people say it's not much different. Others say it's much milder. Hard to know because now so many people have been infected or vaccinated and in, or infected and vaccinated. So we don't know what the sort of resistance levels there are really. And, and the disease generally looks milder. Mm-hmm. But the what's whole. the mechanism though for, why, why would it be the case that a milder variation would dominate over time? Well, if it spreads readily and uh, it's not killing people. You know, killing people is a bad way to get spread uh, with most viruses. With a respiratory pathogen, you want people walking around, coughing and spluttering and going to, going to uh, shopping malls. Mm. And so uh, that's the ideal for spread. So you don't want to kill people. So, uh, but viruses can evolve to be more virulent. I mean, it does happen. But generally... Uh, it, it, it's the hope is that they'll, they'll evolve to be less virulent, but to some extent that's hope, that's mm-hmm. uh, because you know this virus is spreading very effectively. It still c- it kills old people and uh, um, not killing young people on the whole, so it gets around quite nicely. One of the key news stories going back some time now was this lab leak hy- hypothesis. Is is first of all, I just want to ask, when it comes to gain of function research, what what are the what are the reasons, the legitimate reasons why well, they Well, the virologists research? have been trying to understand why these viruses kill us. Mm-hmm. So they've been playing around with the viruses to try and understand what it is that, that, um, that makes them virulent, what virulence really means in terms of the molecular structure of the virus. And if we could target that, if we could find out, maybe we could design a new therapy based on maybe mRNA, for instance. That would be a really novel therapy to mm-hmm. stop. Or the other thing is, of course, if you're going to understand what, what it is about the virus that really makes it highly virulent, uh, could you then, as you do surveillance to try and see what's out there, could you pick the viruses that are likely to be a real danger? Mm-hmm. And so, so, you know, they've been trying to understand this. And so some of that resulted in what was called gain-of-function experiments. Uh, it's, it, and it became a very politic- politicised area. And uh, so everything was tightened up and uh, this sort of research, which was often going on at a somewhat lower level, then was then transferred into level four labs. I mean, these are labs where everyone's clad in a spacesuit. They've, they've either got to breathe a oxygen on their back mm-hmm. and uh, they're breathing through a tube or they're connected by a tube uh, to, uh, to and they're all negative pressure. So, and so and occasionally people get infected. I mean, things go wrong. Things always go wrong. I mean, they jab themselves in the finger through a glove or something like that. I don't know, actually. I mean, people think, they, you'd so, sort of think from what you read, these viruses are getting out of labs all the time. I mean, I, I don't know of any escape from a level four lab. I know some people have been infected by accident, but have they infected anyone else? over the last 20 years. I mean, modern level four labs, I think it's very difficult to get a leak because anything goes wrong is immediately reported. But there's been some suspicions that the Chinese lab wasn't running properly and stuff. But there's no real evidence that it has leaked out of the lab. Um, There's nothing in the sequence of the virus Mm -hmm. that the people who know these viruses say uh, that tells us that it's been in a lab 
or that anyone's tried to manipulate it. See, this is what I wanted to ask you about. If, if someone had used, if someone uses CRISPR or something like this on an organism, can you actually detect that that organism? I, I would, I'm not so sure about CRISPR, but, but basically uh, the, the sort of standard engineering techniques, uh, the, the molecular virologists would pick those up. I'm not so sure. I mean, you'd really need to ask someone who's a molecular virologist. But the, but the guys who, who know these viruses say there's nothing they're seeing in the virus sequence that's telling them that it's come out of a lab or that anyone's manipulated it. But you can't, I mean, it's almost impossible to say, well, you know, maybe people who were doing virus surveillance brought this virus back to the lab and it got out of the lab. Mm -hmm. And it's almost impossible to say that that didn't happen. But there's no particular reason to think it did. Mm. And, and, you know, there is sort of reasonably good evidence that it clustered around that seafood market in Wuhan and initially. But there's also evidence that there were two strains initially. Mm. Now that's, if there were two strains right from the beginning, and it really did begin in humans in November, December 2019, it makes it very unlikely it came out of a lab. What would be much more likely is that the virus went into some second species from bats, say, into raccoon dogs. One of these species, which may be sort of bred in breeding colonies, say in Vietnam or somewhere, and then they sell these animals up into China. And so basically, if you had a virus established in a breeding colony of some other animal, and especially if it's not causing severe disease in those animals that's just evolving, you could start to see variants emerging within a breeding colony. So you could imagine that if animals are transported from a particular colony where this virus has been in for some time, you might see a couple of variants coming across into humans. So there's, there's no, no particular reason to think it's come out of a lab. But a lot of people just like to believe this. I mean, firstly, they, it's anti-science. I mean, they, 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 they're blaming the virologists. And secondly, they, uh, they, they just don't like the sense that we're totally at the mercy of nature, which we are. They would prefer to be at the I mercy mean, of a foreign power. And we know, for instance, from the live bird markets, I mean, people get infected over and over and over with influenza viruses in live bird markets. Mm-hmm. That, that it's, it's just, it just happens all the time. It's basically the cause of uh, the H5N1 thing where people were killed, um, H7N9, it happens all the time. Mm. Then can I ask, in terms of ability, uh, do we really have the ability to, from ground level, design and construct if someone wanted to, if someone wanted to do it, I don't think they'd know how to do it. Quite frankly, I mean, if you wanted to make a virus that was virulent in humans, uh, I don't think that scientists would necessarily know how to do that. But what you would do is you would be a dictator with a large prison population, mm-hmm. and what you would do is infect some of those prisoners, keep them all together. And then when some of them start to die, you would select the virus that's in the ones that are dying mm-hmm. and you would propagate that. So, you know, you could do it. But I, I don't think people know enough about the basis of virus virulence to actually sit down. They could take a highly virulent avian virus in flu, say, and recombine it with um, a highly virulent, uh, with, a, with a less virulent human virus. We worry that that will happen in nature. That's mm-hmm. always a concern. And the Hong Kong flu, the H3N2 
Hong Kong flu that came across in 1968 is probably one of those. And it's possible the 1918 one, which was so terribly virulent, is one of those. Mm. It's a bird virus that reassociated with a human virus. Um, the flu virus has got eight different bits of its genome and it repackages. And of course, the, the 2009 swine flu virus, two different swine flu swine viruses got together and came at, um, and created a virus which transmitted very well in humans, but wasn't particularly virulent. So. so I don't know very much about how viruses propagate, but I didn't understand that you could get two viruses, which it, it sounds like sexual reproduction almost. No, you'd have to actually get a cell, a single cell infected with two different flu viruses. Mm -hmm. You can do this in the lab all the time. It works with flu. Flu has its genetic material in eight different segments. So if you take a cell culture and, and you infect cells with two different flu viruses, what you will get is they will reassociate in the cell. Mm. And you'll get a novel, it's called a recombinant, but it's actually a reassortment. Mm. But then you can also get viral recombination. You can get changes within the viral genome. You see a bit of that with COVID, I think, SARS-CoV-2. Um, but that's one of the mechanisms for pandemic flu viruses coming across, we think. I see. I we worry that uh, someone with, with a human flu viruses will then get infected with a bird one, and some cells will have both viruses in them, and a new strain will come out of it. And be highly virulent. And be a pandemic strain. Yeah. But, okay, so when it comes to existential risk, how do you, uh, do, you, do, you put, um, do you put pandemics above climate change? Like, how, how should we... Well, it's different. I, I, and before COVID-2, I would have ranked pandemics much lower, quite frankly. But, you know, pandemics, I mean, this virus is not going to kill us out, obviously. But it may cause, it caused an enormous amount of economic damage. And it's causing, depending on how long COVID plays out, it's causing a lot of debility. Mm -hmm. So it's causing a lot of financial costs and a lot of social costs. Um, Will we, would we see a virus which is as infectious as this and kills 10% of people? Mm. I don't know. I think we would react much more strongly, of course, mm. and uh, maybe close it down a lot quicker. Um, we don't know. And uh, climate change, though, I mean, is this steady, inexorable progression. Mm. And that's the real problem with it is, I mean, we've seen how quickly people tire of taking remedial measures. Mm. You know, what are we saying with climate change? We're saying, oh, we may take your pickup truck away. I mean, that would be a terrible <laughs> infringement, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I'm down at Point Lonsdale. Point Lonsdale is the port that all the ships that come in to Melbourne come past Point Lonsdale, in fact. So you see these massive container ships coming on, and you can see the enormous amount of, uh, you know, the dirtiest uh, transporting the whole world basically is, is big ships and and what are they there's all these containers um, you know many many are full of useless crap that people buy and throw away I mean mm. you know so are you really going to get the whole world off the endless consumption of useless crap that's what drives our economy right I, I suppose that the thing that I worry about is when I when I look at the solutions to climate change you often see that people fixate on solutions like, um, let's say, electric cars, which are very sexy. Yeah, but but yeah, if you compare them to public transport, yeah. you know, if you were going to throw your eggs into a basket, then public transport probably beats out electric cars. Absolutely. I mean, um, yeah, and then there's a whole there's a whole climate cost in making your electric car battery and your electric car 
and then you've got to you've got to fuel that electric car. You, to to my mind, to to think that we're actually going to fuel um, fuel modern society. I mean, for instance, if you have sort of self-driving cars, there's an enormous amount of computing required and an enormous amount of energy required to do that. There's an enormous amount of energy required for your electric car. You've got to charge it somehow. So mm -hmm. maybe in Australia where you can put solar panels on every house and so forth, but then you know, the sun doesn't always shine. Yeah. And, um, and so I, I think we're vastly underestimating the energy requirements for the future. And the thought that we can do it solely from renewables, I'd, I'd really like to see some very good mathematical studies of this. Mm -hmm. um, it's like saying gas is clean. Yeah. But you can never find uh, data on, you know, the, the gas leak. You know, 20% of uh, some of the gas fields, 20% of the gas that comes off is straight CO2, which is vented straight into the atmosphere. Mm. That's not clean. Uh, there's the methane leak, leak from prop improperly attended wellheads and boreheads, boreholes. Mm. That's not clean. Methane's a worse greenhouse gas than mm. carbon dioxide. Then, of course, if you're going to export your methane, you've got to liquefy it. Mm. You've got to use energy to do that. So, you know, I'm not convinced that gas is any cleaner than coal. In fact, coal may be preferable because it, uh, it sends up a lot of soot and makes people sick. So people are at least aware it's there. <laughs> Can I ask then, so do you, do you think in some sense COVID was uh, like a trial run or, or a, um, you know, it, it was bad, but do you think in the end it's going to have some protective effect against whatever the next pandemic is? If we're intelligent, it will, but I'm not too sure how about our capacity to learn. I think the professionals will learn from it, uh, but will we really learn the lessons we need to learn from it? I mean, you know, the lesson for Australia is always, you know, on anything, break down the silos, but, you know, we're so good at silos. Mm. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I think the symbol on the Qantas jet tail shouldn't be a kangaroo, it should be a silo. Mm. How serious is the, the threat of antimicrobial resistance then? It's very serious. I mean, a bacterial resistance, antimicrobial resistance. Basically, the drug companies, pharmaceutical companies, they're all for profit operations, and they back right off on antibiotic research because there wasn't enough money in it. Mm -hmm. And so people like Gates Foundation have come in and they've tried to fill that gap. But there's not enough antibiotic, um, there's not a big enough pipeline. And, and we need to be looking to some different types of antibiotic type mechanisms. And so it, it's, it's one that worries my colleagues a lot, who are in the, and it's an increasing problem in hospitalized people. Hmm. So in terms of impact, uh, the impact of your uh, research on medicine, what sort of therapies do we have access to, to today? That well, it's it, it was a basic discovery which told us about how, you know, one half of the immune system basically works by focusing on our own cells through the transplant molecules. Mm. So that, that was a massive breakthrough in understanding. That's why we got a Nobel Prize. Mm. We didn't work it all out. I mean, we made the, the initial discovery and then other people helped and did various things which were absolutely central. I mean, that's how you get a Nobel Prize. You make the initial discovery, a lot mm -hmm. of other people do the work and you get the Nobel Prize. But, um, but basically, uh, it's, it's you know, the new cancer therapies, the immune, uh, the, uh, the, the ones that sort of turn T cells back on and tumors and so forth, sort of, they, they come through a lineage from what we did, but, um, mm. but uh, actually what we actually did hasn't sort of 
led to a major therapy, if you like. It's, mm -hmm. it's led to an understanding of, of the uh, mm -hmm. cellular immune response. But so there's no, you can't put your thumb down, for example. No, it's not some, like developing a drug and say, okay. you know, this drug, we, we, under, we worked out why this person's getting cancer and this molecule has changed. We've designed this drug to block that molecule and there you go. Mm. So that's, that's not the sort of, and um, you know, what, what Nobel Prizes would award is the first time that that's done. But then maybe another hundred people who do that with different cancers and they won't get Nobel Prizes. So. Hmm. Yeah. Do, do you think eventually, so f first off, why is it that cancers uh, can evade our current uh, system? And do you think eventually we're going to have vaccines for cancers? Sort of it, there may be a role for vaccines for cancers. People have been trying this a lot. You know, the, the, um, uh, the, the, the big breakthrough in cancer therapy, uh, there have been several. One is monoclonal antibodies made against particular molecules in the cancer, uh, which will act, can actually block the cancer. And some of the lymphomas and so forth have been very well treated with these. There have been some forms of breast cancer that have been quite well treated with them. So that, that was a direct therapy, but using a biological ent entity, basically antibodies that are cloned out and you make, make these monoclonals. But then, um, the other big, big breakthrough, and this, this was a Nobel Prize to Jim Allison and Takushi Honjo, is basically the recognition that are immune checkpoint inhibitors. That we, we knew for many, many years that tumors would often have immune killer T cells sitting in them that were doing nothing. The tumor had turned them off. Mm -hmm. And basically Jim uh, discovered how to turn them back on again by blocking these checkpoint molecules. And so uh, then these T cells turn on and they kill off the tumor. Mm -hmm. So that was a big breakthrough initially with melanoma, then with a number of other tumors. Now, the hope is that with some tumors that doesn't work at all, but there's a hope that if you could actually create that killer T cell response by using an appropriate vaccine, an mRNA may be just the way to do it actually, that you could actually tailor individual killer T cell responses or even make killer T cell responses that could be used on a lot of different individuals mm -hmm. that would then, even if the, the, those cells were turned off, the, the checkpoint things would turn them back on again. So you know, there may be a whole new era of, of, um, of vaccine immunity which is perhaps tailored, well certainly tailored to a particular tumour, but it might actually need to be tailored to a particular so individual. So personalised medicine. Yeah, personalised medicine, which makes it enormously expensive. And that's the problem with modern medicine. You know, these monoclonal antibody therapies are enormously expensive. And um, What about in terms of so uh, anti-rejection uh, medications or, or therapies? Do you think at, at some point we're going to say for example you wanted to have a kidney transplant can we also transplant say a, a part of the immune system of the donor or are there well we could i mean you could take the the individual and do a bone marrow reconstitution if they're reasonably matched but um you know that can work but basically that's not usually what happens i mean a bone marrow transplant is a hell, hell of a process you know it's not it's not something trivial and so, but a lot of graft rejection, gra uh, rejection has been actually using an immunosuppressive drug that's worked very well. And, and so, um, uh, you know, transplants work a lot, but people are on therapy for the rest of their life.
One of the reasons why I asked whether uh, our immune system is localized, you know, going back to uh, the autoimmune response. Well, the, the, the responses, uh, initial responses are localized response, but then it generalizes and the cells are everywhere. I, I had sort of hoped that if you had a transplant, maybe you could... Uh, Cut off that arm or something. No, no, no. no, no, no but I just mean uh, apply the uh, anti-rejection drugs locally. Or no, it, it, no. Uh, it doesn't. I mean, you, if you could, you know, a lot of, a lot of the problem with therapy is, for, is, is access of the therapeutic entity and targeting mm. of the therapeutic entity. And that's really a lot of the problem. I mean, we flood the body with drugs. Whereas you only really need it, say, partic some particular location, but you have to flood the body unless you're going to. There's no way you can actually deliver it specifically to that location, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of thinking about how you might do that. But um, I don't think any significant drugs that have come along that have, have actually achieved it yet. So you know, there's a whole lot of stuff that needs to be done in science, and massive possibilities. But um, and we'd like, you know, there are some things we'd really like to see. I mean, too many young women still die of cancer, for instance. Mm. Yeah. Uh, breast cancer specifically? or uh, Breast cancer, ovarian cancer, yeah. Do, do women have a higher incidence of cancer than men? Um, I'm not sure. Or is it an sure. age thing? Because I know that prostate cancer yeah. is a high incidence, but it's but usually it's older, older men. It's older men usually. Not always older men, but it tends to be older men, yeah. And prostate cancer still kills people, mm -hmm. no, and um, but it um, you know particularly young mothers and so forth dying of breast cancer, ovarian really? cancer, particularly uh, you know cervical cancer. The vaccine now it's uh, hopefully everyone gets it. Mm. Yeah, that helps a lot. I mean it's a papillomavirus induced thing. Yeah. But so, since you you said your research that you got the Nobel for was more fundamental in nature, when when you initially, I think it's fifty or so years ago now that you had the, the actual discovery. discovery was made fifty years ago next year, uh, and so oh, this year, fifty years ago this year. Well, congratulations. <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> yeah. But but so when when you initially had the the discovery, what was the reaction? Was it was it something where you really had to fight for recognition, or was it something that people really no, accepted? Actually, it was. Um, it was, we initially, we saw it and we said, God, I'm out of here. this is, <laughs> this is something. Uh, and um, it, was, it was basically unexpected, totally unexpected. And we saw the immune response linking to the transplant mm -hmm. molecules. So, and we worked that out fairly quickly using various genetically bred mice that had been bred to study graft rejection, actually. So we, we did that. And we reported this and people were very in interested. It was the first time anyone had said this is a role for the transplant system and um, this is basically uh, how, how, how that sort of type of response is working. But the exp explanation we had, a lot of people didn't accept. Uh, we said that the, um, uh, the virus was altering the transplant molecule. We called it altered self. It turns out it's actually the, it's a peptide from the virus binding to the transplant molecule, but that is altered self. So that took about 10 years to discover, actually, and with someone else who finally worked that out. Mm. But, um, but so, so the phenomenon was recognized, and we became sort of famous overnight, but, uh, but really the explanation wasn't generally accepted for about another 10 years. Mm. And it, it took, um, it was 22 years after we published our first papers, we got the Nobel Prize. That's not unusual, I mean, it's often mm. 20, 25, 30 years even to get a Nobel Prize. I mean, they don't like to get it wrong. Yeah. On the topic of the Nobel, 
what role do you think ego plays in science? Do you, do you think, um, do you, for instance, do you ever think about how am I going to be remembered a hundred years from now or a thousand years from now? Well, most scientists have forgotten very quickly. I mean, you know, uh, we remember a few, Einstein for his hair, you know, and, and e, e equals mc squared, even if you don't know what it means, people remember it. But most scientists are quickly forgotten. I mean, we still rattle on about Newton and stuff. Uh, and, and physicists, the, because, you know, the God particle, I mean, that, that, that's very memorable and so forth. But, um, but basically, you know, a lot of the historians of science will focus on physics. Mm-hmm. They don't focus on biology because biology tells them something very uncomfortable. There's Darwin, there's Darwin. Yeah, Darwin, but biology tells them something very uncomfortable. Because it tells us basically, we, we don't know most of the time what the hell's going on, and a lot of discoveries made by pure chance. Mm-hmm. And that's not very good for a philosopher of science. They don't like, really like that very much. Mm. And there's uh, a lot of chance in physics too. Yeah, but you can put it in nice physical terms. Yeah. yeah, I think that comes afterwards when you're writing the paper, yeah, right? Yeah. You, you don't. Oh show yeah, no, no, it, it, it's all. I mean, the, the scientific paper is basically a fraud. I mean, you never, you never write in a sense that you never the introduction as to why you actually did the experiment. You might discuss in the discussion why you actually did it, but the introduction is, is really your, it, it, you, you never write the introduction till you've written the results, the discussion, and the conclusions. And then you can write the introduction, which leads into why you would, would get those particular mm-hmm. results. Because had other, incredible foresight. <laughs> because otherwise you're never going to get your paper accepted because if you really put in the introduction why we did these experiments, you put up so many red flags to a reviewer that you never get it accepted. Yeah. And of course we don't have, we don't really have journals for failed experiments, which is another problem. No, right? no. Well, you do now. You can publish absolutely anything somewhere. <laughs> but well, they're starting to develop... Um, Anyway, this, this is something... I, I think the way physics handles it's very good, actually, that mm. you basically... I mean, as I understand it, a lot of physics, theoretical physics at least, it means you, you circulate the paper mm-hmm. before... On the archive. On the, and then people discuss it. And, and the actual scientific paper is often a synthesis of the criticisms and so forth that have come through, and then you, you get a very... But that hasn't been the case with biomedicine. But it's been a bit with these preprints. It's been happening a bit now with covid for instance, that you, you're getting that effect. Um, it probably wouldn't work in biomedicine. And, and there's, I think uh, biomedicine particularly is a complicated culture because it has the doctors in it too. Mm. I mean, you have professional scientists like me who really just do science. But then you have a lot of doctors who are sort of um, sometimes maybe a bit more eco-driven and so forth that... Uh, and, and often doing science somewhat third-hand too, which is somewhat of a concern. But I think that the meaning behind my question was more, do you think ego is useful in propagating, in pushing science forward? Because, I, you know, we, we, we name equations after people and we, you have a building named after you, you know? And, yeah, they're yeah. not my choice. I mean, you know, they asked me if, I, if, I'd I, let, if I, they could use my name and I said, well, why don't you go out and raise a lot of money and, and get, get it from some wealthy guy and, and, and name the building after them? And they said, well, that doesn't work like that here. And uh, so they did name the building after me, but usually buildings are named after people after they're dead. Mm-hmm. But, um, so it was unusual. Uh, but, um, and I've always told them, you know, if you can sell the building name off for $50 million, go ahead and do, do it. it. Yeah. Yeah. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah. no, I don't think, I mean, we don't, you don't do 
science to become famous. You do science because you're engaged. You want to understand what's going on mm. at a basic level. You want to understand what's going on. If you can do something that's useful, great. But you know, that's not really the primary motivation of the type of science that, that leads to discovery. I mean, that's basically curiosity-driven research. And, you know, but you've got scientists operating at every level. I mean, you've got, in the drug industry, for instance, you've got scientists who, mm -hmm. who are developing a product and so forth. It's all perfectly legitimate, but these people don't win Nobel Prizes. Mm. Then what about so the, the superstars, so the Darwins and the Einsteins? Do you think they'll be forgotten as well? Ten, let's no, say, no, let's Darwin, say, let's Darwin, Darwin is fixed in the firmament, you know, basically. But let's, let's, let's go for 10,000 years or something. We're all robots or <laughs> whatever Yeah, comes well, in. I don't know, I don't know, yeah. I mean, but evolution, I mean, uh, natural selection was a, a very big idea. Mm. And basic, I mean, uh, Alfred Russell Wallace. Wallace got mm. the same idea at the same time from his studies in what he was doing, he was trapping animals in Indonesia, really, and, uh, yeah. and selling them. So, uh, but that's one of the big ideas. I mean, you know, if with biology, yeah. if it doesn't fit with evolution, it's probably wrong. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned uh, Wallace. And so he, he isn't remembered the same way that Darwin is. And, and you often hear stories about people saying, you know, so-and-so deserved the Nobel Prize, but for whatever reason, they weren't recognized. And stuff. As someone who has won the Nobel Prize, how should we, how should we conceptualize these stories about? It, well, you know, they, they give, if, if you're talking about a Nobel Prize in the sciences, mm -hmm. they give it to three people, max. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it was fairly straightforward with our Nobel Prize. I, I thought there was another guy they could have included who sort of discovered the peptide thing, but they didn't, they chose not to. They always go back to the original discovery. So, um, and so Mendel, of course, he's before the Nobel mm -hmm. Prize, as is Darwin. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, but, um, but in many cases, I mean, you know, now it's a team. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of the, the, the angst about Nobel Prizes, uh, sometimes people feel they've been unjustifiably left out. And uh, the, other, the other problem, though, is where you've had a team and it's the postdoc mm -hmm. who makes the discovery and then it's the professor who gets the prize. Mm -hmm. that, they're tending more now to actually recognize the postdoc. Mm -hmm. But early on, there were some cases that were fairly egregious, I think, where there was the young person who really made the discovery and pushed it, mm -hmm. and then the professor who sort of took the credit for it. Mm -hmm. I think that happens a lot less now. And, and you commonly now see a senior and a junior person associated with a number of them. Although to be fair, quite often the senior person has 10 different projects that they could be working on. They understand each one of them. It's just a time... Yeah, uh, yeah, sure. And, and, and they provide the resources and the environment. And they may have provided a lot of the work that sort of preceded this breakthrough and so forth. So it depends you know, how independent uh, that is, but uh, there can be some real anguish around those issues. I think also. I mean, no, there's one I know of where you know people say, "Well, X got the Nobel Prize, but you know he really didn't do anything. He's, we were just in his lab and working with him, and mm -hmm. we finally convinced him, and you know then he gets the Nobel Prize. You know that 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 can happen. Although it's people like to see their impact as being, they're watching, they, they watch every step of the way of their own work, but they don't see what's going on in the background. No. Super. And so. But it is problematic and the Swedes worry about it. 
uh, because you know they they know that science is not done. I mean, our our discovery was done in a small lab thing. It was just a couple of young guys working together. An extraordinary situation. Now we'd be working for some famous guy at that stage of our career, and uh, that wasn't the way it was. It was just two young guys, and. Um, but that's now very unusual, and usually you've got big teams, and you know a small lab now is often eight or ten people at least. Mm. Yeah. So uh, I, I want to jump back, just sort of it's sort of on topic, uh, back to science and politics a little bit, and and I'm wondering when it comes to science funding, right? How how can we be sure? How can we ensure that there's an effective distribution of funds because what what I tend to see in physics at least is that you get uh, these very popular fields or you get some some things that are fashionable mm. um, so for example it was supersymmetry then it was string theory and right now you might say it's quantum computing and, and gravitational waves and and what happens is you have big guys in these fields that then are making decisions about where the money is going and how can we ensure that, so f for someone like yourself, you, you've... Well, you've it's, it, it's difficult and, and you know, the, the cultures are different too. I mean, a lot of the funding we see for particularly, say, experimental physics, these are big, big budget items that really, they're political decisions in the end. <coughs> Whereas the, the type of money that comes into biomedical research traditionally has been reviewed through grants that are quite small, investigator initiated and all the rest of it. And it's, it's a difficult, it can be a difficult sell to government. I mean, a lot of, some people in the government in Australia say, well, why do we do science? We're not really, yeah. And basically, you know, if we want to be players, we have to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, how much we actually earn from it. I mean, it's said that biomedical research actually brings a lot of money into Australia. And, mm -hmm. and there are people who have various calculations out there. I'm not up on this stuff anymore. I was sort of playing that game and trying to talk to politicians for a long time, but I sort of came to the end of it. But so, but when you decide to sort of um, the uh, the big array telescope, for instance, mm -hmm. this is a political decision in the end. Mm -hmm. It's a prestige decision. It's uh, mm -hmm. and it's it's made at the political level. So you hand out hundreds of millions of dollars much more easily than you hand out a million dollar, where you've got all this peer review going on through various committees and stuff. Well, if yeah. you just and then you know, and also you know, if you putting out research money in the United States. Mm. All that money gets spent in the United States. The reagents are bought in mm -hmm. the United States. The equipment is bought in the United States. The people are employed there. And the benefit goes there. But if you're doing that in Australia, you're buying mm -hmm. stuff from the United States. And so not all that money gets spent, uh, spent uh, in, in within countries, so to speak. Mm -hmm. For the Square Kilometre Array Telescope, I think if, if you're just interested in the science, then Australia was the correct place for it to yeah, be, yeah, sure. rather no, than South Africa. But that's a completely different topic. Yeah. Let, let me ask then, so how should you, if, if, you were, if you were the Prime Minister, Peter Doherty, or whoever's in charge of these funding decisions, how do you, how do you decide the breakup between fundamental research, like what you were doing, or, or sort of more applied? Where, uh, yeah, I think, I think you, you know, all governments, government, people who are running governments and so forth have a perfect right to say, we want you to look at these particular problems. We need them. But the problem with that is, particularly in biomedicine, you get what, what's called the disease of the month club. Hmm. So I think, I think the politicians have to decide that something, an activity is worthwhile to give it a reasonable level of funding and let it, let it run with the professionals running it, really. 
I mean, if you, you know, if you pour all the money into diabetes, for instance, you'll fund a lot of people who are not very good, and you won't, you'll fund a lot of other people in another area who are very good, and you won't fund them at all. So, you know, you have to leave it up. Uh, but it's, it's a difficult area for government because you're putting out a fairly significant amount of government funding uh, on a sort of speculative basis, if you like, mm. or to keep a culture running or mm-hmm. to, keep a, to keep a high level of intellectual activity in your country, so to speak. So it's not a, not a straightforward thing. It's not like putting out money to build a building or build a bridge or something like that. So I think uh, you need a reasonable level of sophistication at the level of government. I think we, you know, we, we've certainly got that probably more on the Labor side of politics here than the previous Liberal government, which was not terribly sophisticated. But, mm-hmm. but for instance, John Howard, a very conservative Prime Minister, very interested in medical research, and I think he doubled the budget twice yeah, and uh, saw the value of it. Because it is a value based in excellence and hard work and, and genuine innovation and stuff. So. It, it does give a flavour to a society. So, uh, two more sort of political questions. How do we ensure, uh, most research is done in universities, there are also institutions, but how, how do you ensure that universities act to the benefit or in the interests of the students and society, rather because they're businesses as well, rather than in their own interests? I can give you examples if you'd like. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not terribly up on, you know, even though I work in a university, I, I, I involve myself in university politics and administration as little as possible. But basically, I, I think you, it, it's, if you're going to give money to institutions to hand out, I mean, Max Planck, for instance, mm-hmm. then you have to have really good rules and really high quality people running it. And, and you'll see with, with the Max Planck, I mean, you've, you've worked in that system and, and it's certainly a great system for the scientists. But, you know, they're very, very difficult for people to advance within that system, as you know. And, and so I, I think the investig- for biomedicine, what works is the investigator-initiated research project. Mm-hmm. And, and that means basically universities have just got to pe- people who are competitive and smart mm-hmm. if they want to get resources from it. And of course, in American universities, there's a very big pressure to do that because not only do the investigators bring in their research funds, they bring in indirect costs. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, when I was working in a place called the Wistar Institute in Philadelphia, which is a private biomedical research institute embedded in the University of Pennsylvania, but not controlled by it. And Penn's one of the IV schools. And in medicine, Penn is very prominent. And so, basically, every $100,000 I got in grant money, the institute got $100,000 in, in indirect costs mm-hmm. that came to the institution. So that's a really good incentive to employ people who can actually generate grant funding. Mm. And, you know, that's a blunt instrument because not all the people, some people are just better at grants actually than the science, but, you know, there is a correlation, obviously. Mm -hmm. So it, um, but we don't have that indirect cost mechanism here. Mm -hmm. But on the whole, you know, it's universities, if they want to be competitive, have to employ the brightest people, that's basically mm-hmm. it. Now, how that translates to teaching is another matter at all, again, I mean, actually, 
not necessarily, I mean, some of the best teaching institutions in the United States aren't the research universities, they're the liberal arts colleges. Mm -hmm. so, so one example I'm personally interested in is uh, if you look at, for example, the, the length of junior contracts. Yeah. So for the state that's funding a university, it might be interesting to have a very long contract, say five years, so that you bring someone in, they become embedded in the system, and they eventually might even stay, even if they don't stay yeah. in research. Yeah. Whereas for the university, maybe it's good to have shorter two-year periods. And no, I think for everyone it's better to have, you know, if, uh, once, once you're getting someone on the road to running their own research group, yeah. you know, at, at a junior level. I think you really need five-year commitments, seven-year commitments, and so forth. I mean, I've worked in, I've worked in universities where I've had tenured positions, tenured for life, and given them up because they were ridiculous. Uh, the Australian National University... Were ridiculous in what sense, sorry? Well, you, because you ended up with an enormous deadwood problem, basically. Ah, if you tenure people for life, never review them, and you just hand them money, you'll end up with it just, you know... Doing nothing. Well, they don't do nothing, but they do stuff that they were doing 30 years ago. You know? So what's the sweet spot then? I, I, well, the inst well, you need a, you need a well-funded system. But St. Jude Children's Hospital, where I worked in the United States, nobody was permanent. Mm -hmm. as, as a department head, I served at the pleasure of the board, and, but everyone was on um, uh, five or three-year contracts. Mm -hmm. Once you got up to associate professor, you're on a five-year contract, five-year renewable. And if they were going to terminate, you got two years' notice. Mm -hmm. So I think in a research institution, a research-only institution, uh, you need renewable contracts mm. and you need to give people a transition mm. but you know people tend to get the message when they're not doing well and they look for a job in a university but what's happened with American universities where there's no retirement age I mean a lot of them are clogged up with people who just won't go I mean you know there's a, there's a lot of dead wood mm. and uh, I mean tenure Johns Hopkins University means if you're not funding your salary and your research through grants, your salary will be cut 10% a year every year until yeah. you get refunded, okay? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's that sort of mechanism, which is really mm -hmm. brutal, mm -hmm. yeah. But uh, the, to work in science, do science full-time, funded from the public sector, I mean, it's an immense privilege, actually. Mm -hmm. And basically, you can't have it filled up with people who are not doing a good job. And so one of the issues, so at the moment where it, what's big in uh, research is the discussion about, for example, um, minority groups or women in physics or women in science, STEM. And how do you think, um, not just for these groups, but in general, how do you protect junior researchers during, for example, childbearing years and when they're having families? Well, we, we did it. Um, I mean, locally, we, we had some big grants. And basically, um, we, the, the, the younger women who are running research labs, when they needed to take that time out, we kept the labs running. They, um, and, uh, and they were able to do that part-time and keep things running. I mean, that, that can be... An, can be a sort of a, a positive feature of an umbrella type thing. If, if someone is, is uh, I don't think it's, it's possible now to do effective science completely alone, so to speak. Mm. 
So it's, but it's, it's difficult. I mean, it's a complex situation, obviously. Certainly having really good child minding within the institution is great. I mean, the Hall Institute, for instance, uh, Doug Hilton, I think, set up an actual creche within the institution and, and preschool and looking after kids within the institution, which has been a big help for uh, women. But also, as you know, there are many situations now where it's not the woman who's taking, if she's the really talented one, and it's a husband-wife combination, it's the guy who's taking the, the childcare role. And that's happening in science, it's happening in business and all sorts of situations. We know a number of, of cases where that's, where that's so. So one partner is stepping back, but not necessarily the woman. But of course, obviously the woman has to have the kid. <laughs> so, mm. yeah. so um, yeah, I think there's a lot of sensitivity to that. And it's not my sort of, my sort of thing, but my own personal experience is we did everything possible to help uh, uh, young women who were talented and were going through that, um, those, those years of child, uh, small children and so forth. And it worked fine. I, mean, uh, I want to uh, end the discussion with a few questions that are sort of focused towards the future and also which will sort of flesh out uh, a bit to do with your personality. Um, and so uh, I've, I've just got a few questions along those lines. Um, do you find it is ever hard to live up to your Nobel work or to live up to the image of a laureate? Honestly, I don't care about any of it. I really mm. don't care. I never have very cared very much what other people think of me. I, mm. I basically do what interests me. Now, that's kind of selfish in a way. I do what interests me. I don't get in, involved in races, mm. and I don't follow fashion. Mm. Never done it. Always been bored by it. And, but, you know, the, particularly with American science, it, it often, particularly in the, in the 80s, 70s, 80s, 60s, 70s, it was like a swarm of bees. Mm. I mean, they'd, they'd all be swarmed here. And someone would discover something over yeah, there. Sure. They'd all swarm <laughs> over there. And they'd bzzz, and then they'd all do the same stuff. And then something would happen over here. They'd all swarm over here. I I just I just stayed there and kept doing what I was doing and, and asking the questions that interested me. I just don't care about it. And and a lot of the uh, sort of attention with the Nobel, um, it's fine. I I'd handle it okay, but it, it can be somewhat nauseating at mm. times. Sycophants and well, sycophancy is always nauseating. Don't, mm. I, I I just don't. I just can't stand it, actually. You know, I, I, for instance, sometimes you get upgraded to first class on aeroplanes and they start to treat you the way they treat these wealthy businessmen. I find it faintly, quite, quite unpleasant. Mm. I, I don't want these people hovering over me. Is it? Mm. Yeah. But of course, there's a whole culture that demands this. Mm -hmm. But I think they're basically creeps and, uh, you know. It's a little bit like... I've been trying to think about uh, a good analogy. You know, for soldiers, we have statues and we have war memorials and we have things like this. And I, I suppose, I'm, I'm not saying there's some grand conspiracy, but the, these, these things do serve a p purpose in society, right? The, well, yeah. for pigeons, they certainly do. For pigeons, they do, but also you I mean, a lot of the statues are being pulled down. So the statues of the, of the southern generals and so forth are all being pulled down. And people are saying, well, why are all these statues of men up there and there are statues of women? I mean, mm. there are a lot of women that should be statues too. Right? Mm. I, yeah, I think this whole thing is, um, 
you know, it's public, but I think public art doesn't need to be statues of people. Mm. And, you know, being remembered, I mean, you do things because you want to do them. You don't do it to be remembered and so forth. So, you know, I've written books. I mean, is anyone going to read any of those books? I mean, does anybody read them anyway? But, you know, in the future, does it mean anything? Yeah. I mean, Shakespeare, we are fine. Jane Austen. Well, I, I meant more along the lines of um, there's a function of these things in society, right? They they do serve a purpose to get people to move in a certain way or to think in a certain way. To, there's a certain window. Of well, I, I think the idea of public service, uh, you know, great great public service, you perpetuate it in in the sense of people like Martin Luther King, for instance. Mm -hmm. That that's important, uh, but. Basically, um, and, and you want people to identify with good, good positive sorts of goals. But it's a very confusing That's world at the moment. <laughs> I mean, you know, we, we religion, which did a lot of that. I mean, you, mm -hmm. the religion did a lot of things that are not so good, as we all know. But it also, a lot of the service to people mm -hmm. came through that, that dedication. Uh, and, and we're in this enormous transition phase, and, and everything, everything being greatly confused now because of or changing very rapidly because of social media, which is an enormously powerful force, mm -hmm. and and the internet. I mean, you know, writing a book now, you can do the research from your um, a lot of the research from your living room. Just when I was writing, I wrote this book about you know this is not an area I know about war, for instance. But you can get all sorts of material just online that you could never find in a library, actually, mm. unless you went to the National Library. I mean, a lot of the books, for instance, that were written about World War II, long, long out of print. Mm. Many of them have actually been digitized, and you can get them in, out of digital libraries easily. Mm. Quite extraordinary. So back to your research, what do you think the biggest open challenges are uh, in immunization research, and what are you most excited to see being achieved? Well, I think, I think you know, it's not, we can make products and we can make vaccines and so forth, but uh, uh, particularly we, and COVID will have actually advanced this quite a bit. Our understanding of the human immune system is not great. I mean, when I tell a story about how an immune response works, what I'm doing is actually saying, well, we know this bit from the vaccine works in people, but a lot of the studies are actually in mice. Mm. So th the actual conceptual basis of what I'm saying is largely based on experiments in mice. Now, through COVID, we've actually got a lot more information uh, about human immune responses. Uh, particularly, you know, some areas of human immune response are very poorly studied. Mm. Uh, you would think kids would be fantastically well studied for immunity. They're not. Why? because you can't go around sticking needles into kids all the time and you can't go around sticking needles into babies and taking 10 or 20 mils of blood all the time and so you know it's 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 complex so you tend to study things when th they go wrong but there you have to be careful um, traditionally human immunology was done very seriously by rheumatologists 
autoimmune disease and all the rest of it, and neurologists, mm -hmm. diseases like multiple sclerosis. So they were often very interested. The doctors were very interested in immunology. But there's a whole lot of other areas of medicine where people weren't interested in immunology at all. Mm -hmm. Only recently, cancer people got really interested in immunology with these new therapies. Uh, the geriatric, gerontology community, never been very interested in immunology. Though, you know, what kills a lot of people is actually failing immune systems. Mm -hmm. So a lot of this is now being done much better in people. And I think that's a big advance. And we'll get a better understanding of the actual human immune response. I mean, mice are great to tell you about basic mechanisms, but as they say from the HIV world, mice lie and monkeys don't always tell the truth. And so uh, I think that's one of the things that is happening. We're just getting a much better understanding of the human immune system. What do you wish people understood? If there was one thing that you could get people to understand about science in general and immunology specifically, what would that be? I, I think, you know, what people, scientists are not priests. We are not going to give you dogmatic information that said, this is how it is, this is absolutely how it is, go away and do this, okay? We're not priests. We're, we're not working from belief, we're not working from conviction, we're working from evidence and ideas and that changes so what the scientist said is says is not and what people hear is from a scientist when they talk is uh, this is the way it is mm. what the scientist is saying is our best understanding is that that's all we say our best understanding is that what do you find beautiful about the world today and what do you think young people should be excited about? Uh, I think there's one really major issue that we have to tackle, and it's all linked, okay, and that's basically the issue we have to solve is what are we going to do about climate change? Because if we don't do that, I don't see humanity's got a whole lot of future, quite frankly. Would you agree as a physicist? If well, if, if we go two degrees up in warming, then that's bad, right, in the next hundred years? Well, we're that's definitely going to go up two degrees, I think. I don't think there's any way we're not going to, quite frankly. But if we go up three degrees or four degrees, okay, I mean, you know, we're finished. I mean, as far as I'm concerned. So that's the major issue. But there are all sorts of issues here. I mean, the, the issue of equity between people. And so if we don't solve that problem, if we don't achieve a greater level of equity, uh, how do we do we progress this? If, if if political leaders and big money divides people against each other, I mean, so we've got a, we've got some massive social issues that have to be solved, and we've got really some very bad people out there with immense power, hmm. and you can name them, but uh, but really, what do you do about this? I mean, basically, the world is being run by greed. But so if you had your time again... Greed is not good. I mean, you know, that's what Reagan and Thatcher justified. Greed is good. But, I mean, if you just have greed as a motive, uh, you're he just headed for destruction. But so then are you more worried today than you were, say, 50 years ago? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I don't think any of us thought 50 years ago that, you know, humanity would come to an end within the foreseeable. I mean, we were thinking that the world's getting better. Mm -hmm. I'm not convinced the world is getting better anymore. I mean, we're seeing uh, democracies fail. 
Mm. We're seeing countries that are democratic electing to go authoritarian. It may be happening in Israel right now. But so you lived through the, for example, Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, and these, so the nuclear scare, um, there was uh, the hole in the ozone layer. There, there, there were all sorts of issues that... Uh, yes, uh, I mean, the, the, if we'd had a nuclear war, obviously, that would have been catastrophic. Though I don't think people had a real understanding of just how catastrophic that would be. But, um, but basically, I mean, we had a nuclear peace. It's mm. only now that Putin is actually using that Mm. using the fact that they have nuclear weapons to do what they're doing in Ukraine, I mean, which is pretty appalling. But then, you know, the US has done appalling things too in the invasion, I mean, the invasion of Iraq, which totally destabilized the Middle East, was, mm. was an exercise in insanity. Mm. I mean, Vietnam, crazy stuff. Do you think then, if you had your time again, you're 30 years old, you're 25 years old, you'd skip the whole science thing and you'd go into... I have no idea what I'd do if I was 25, 30 years old. I think I'd probably, I mean, I'd try and understand why human beings are as crazy as they are, but um, maybe psychiatry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Peter Doherty, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. So in, in this interview, we haven't gone very in-depth into your research. No, no. No, no, no. It's, it's... Well, there's no point. I mean, this is work that was done 50 years ago. And, um, well, you know, we I mean, you could, Yeah, but, but uh, it's complex and it's, it's specific. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, basically, a lot of things, you know, in, in, in physics, you have these big, big theories and stuff. But a lot of... Uh, because of evolution, mm-hmm. a lot of biology is specific to a particular system. And so that, you know, makes it less of a general mm. point. I mean, it, yeah, it's, that's why we're still making all these discoveries in biology, because evolution has taken us down paths that you wouldn't design. Mm. Yeah. It's not, we're not designed, we're not engineered. Mm. Yeah. So the, the thing that I struggle with in, so this is off topic for me. Uh, the thing, the, the sort of questions that I st- struggle with, because I, I, of course, no, you can leave it on for now. Yeah. I, I might cut in afterwards or... But so the, the sorts of questions that I struggle with, uh, so, so I, I, as I said, I did some research into your background. I, I did some research into the way the um, immunization, uh, um, immune system works. But what I hate doing is finding out some fact and then just asking the question to get you to regurgitate that fact. Yeah, it's, it's really boring. It's really I mean, boring. I, and I, and I, I really hate people doing it. hate that. You know, I don't want to talk about it. I've talked about it for years. I've been talking years. about this stuff for decades. And I'm really bored by the whole thing, actually. And, <laughs> uh, you, know, it's, um, I'm, you know, I'm interested. I'm very interested to see where, what we'll sort of unpick with COVID. Mm. Uh, because I think it's really thrown some... It, it, there are phenomena out there that we've kind of known about and largely ignored. Mm. I mean, a lot of our thinking about COVID was based on our experience with influenza. And when you get a vaccine, you've sort of solved the problem pretty well. But that's not what's happening with COVID. But we, you know, you never, you never get infected again with the same influenza virus in a way that would cause disease. Mm. Okay, it, you're always immune. But kids, get infected with the same para-influenza virus year after year, little kids. And it doesn't change. It's just they have a a milder infection each successive year. Then 
when they bring that infection home, their parents who had that infection as kids catch it again. Right. And then granny, who's had it all through, can kill her in the nursing home. So we've never really dealt with this sort of partial Mm. immunity thing Mm. properly. And now also with this long COVID, we've got a whole new sort of ball game about what's going on here. And but it, we've had this thing about chronic fatigue syndrome for decades. Mm. And people have been very debilitated after virus infections or other events. Nobody's known why. And it's mm. never been worked out because you don't see a lot. But now we've got all these cases of long COVID. So hopefully this will be unpicked mm. and we'll sort of start to solve some of these problems because people have been suffering and, and, and they haven't been getting a lot of help actually. The, the, thing, the two things that I'm really curious about um, is, first of all, okay, so we went into lockdown. We, we vaccinated against yeah. COVID. And we, we separated ourselves. We had all these restrictions put in place. I want to know what the impact is on the other respiratory diseases that sort of in parallel got affected by all these policies. You know, it, um, well, I think we'll, we'll develop a better understanding of some of these diseases. But, uh, you know, basically we had... Um, uh, we, with everything locked down, we locked out flu. Mm-hmm. I mean, it had always been said you can't stop flu by stopping the planes. Well, you can. Mm-hmm. We locked it out. And we had all these, with all these lockdowns, we had all these other infections were at very low level. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, when everything relaxed, they came roaring back. Mm-hmm. So the US, and to some extent here, but much more in the US, has had a terrible problem with the virus called respiratory syncytial mm-hmm. virus, which is a virus of babies, but basically it kills old people. Mm. And it's been putting a lot of older people in hospital and making them very sick. Mm. Uh, we may be just at the point of getting a decent vaccine for it. Mm. But, um, but we, we've had a friend in the US who has almost died of it. Our neighbor, our next door neighbor almost died of it, a doctor. Mm. And so it's, um, it, the, you know, locking down for COVID showed us certain things. It created a lot of mel- mental health issues, mm-hmm. particularly school kids, for instance. Mm. So, and of course, at the end of the day, it would be very interesting to pick apart the statistics and see, you know, we went through lockdowns and we didn't have as many deaths due to COVID, but maybe the rate of suicides went up or maybe, you know, no, I, I think if you look at excess deaths for Australia, we've done really well mm-hmm. but because that had come up in your excess death statistics. But I, I think the mental health issues that came out of it may be a real issue. You know, we, we had two of our grandchildren in college through this. I mean, their, their experience of college was greatly diminished. Mm. But really sad, actually. Mm. And uh, so, so I think, uh, yeah, there's, um, we could learn a lot from it, and I hope we do. And I think that will affect the way we respond in the future. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And, you know, a lot of the objections that were raised and so on, they have, you know, they have some real validity in them. And um, we should look at that whole, that whole thing. And, and I hope that will influence us in the way we do, do these things in the future. Of course, the other interesting... Because I think we'll have more of these events. I mean, I mean you know, the fact that two of those viruses were circulating before mm. 2000, now there are five, says to me, you know, what's changed there? Well, international air travel, but you were having a lot of air travel, international air travel for 2000. What's happened is prosperity in China and mm-hmm. Asia. And these are the countries that have live animal and live bird markets. I mean, the other interesting question, of course, along these lines and is... And tourism to those uh, areas is massively ramped up. 
So the global response uh, to the pandemic was, there, there were some brilliant things that happened, but on the other side, you, you saw, for example, um, masks and vaccines being stolen from various nations by other nations. You saw- Oh yeah. You saw- um, Well, the first world nations definitely looked after, each other, after themselves first. And uh, that, that whole issue of equity uh, is, uh, is, is a massive issue. I mean, you know, we, we're seeing this increasing with, with automation and, and all the rest of it. We're seeing this increasing concentration of wealth in fewer and fewer hands. I think it's a massive problem. I don't know how you handle it. The French Revolution, he handled it by guillotining people. But basically, how do you have a revolution when it's a global issue, not a local issue? Mm. You may have a revolution in a country, but a global revolution? I mean, you know, I just don't think that happens. And on the other side, there was when, when lockdowns were being put in place, uh, sorry, um, uh, on national borders. So when national borders yeah. were shutting and you were having people in the media calling this a racist response and so on, at some point, if we're going to have a global response, and this sort of uh, these sort of lockdowns are going to have to be organised in an well, you've got you know you've got all sorts of things happening in that front. I mean, you you've got this tremendous emigration uh, uh, out from areas of conflict or, or despair, and you know this is just going to get worse with climate change. As you know, as people starve, they, they'll do anything to get away from it. Uh, you know, this this theory. I mean, Tom Friedman has pushed the idea that the the Arab Spring really resulted from very bad harvests, mm. and uh, that what happened in uh, in, in um, Syria has also resulted from people. In fact, people were starving, and the government wouldn't do anything to help them. And this is related to climate change. So, you know, we're going to get this, these enormous tensions, and then people in Europe say reacting to the idea that their society is being destroyed by this influx of people who think differently and look mm -hmm. differently. You know, there's, it's, you, we all we sort of deplore these things, but there's, there's a reality there too. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's a very difficult, very, I think we're getting into an increasingly difficult world and a very challenged world. You know, I, I really wanted to end the podcast on a, on a what's the, What's, what do you find exciting about the world? What, what, do, you, what do you think uh, young people should look forward to? I wanted to, <laughs> to yes, end it on well, a positive. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I think there's some enormously exciting things happening, but you know, a lot of the exciting things that happen actually destroy more jobs and take people. You mm. know, there's so many automation. Yeah, so yeah. much of what's happened is it's not that there aren't jobs, but it's that the, the jobs that were good jobs mm -hmm. have gone and. And the jobs that people identified with for life. I mean, you think of the the sort of tribes that people form into. Mm. Um, I mean, it all it's all now around things like football and so forth. But you used to also be there was a tribe around your workplace. Mm. Yeah, you worked for a firm for years. There was often they often they often had. If you look at the British uh industry for instance they had their own band concert uh, yeah. thing they they had their own football team there was there was a whole tribe around that of course today you move jobs every five years or two years or wherever you're yeah you know. but those tribe but the, because those jobs don't exist anymore the tribes don't exist anymore we have tribes they're online right you have these echo chambers yeah you have those tribes but it's not the same you're not getting together with them you're not going yeah. to a picnic with them you know, your Facebook friends don't come to your funeral. 
maybe they do online. Yeah, I mean, there have been online funerals for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, we've, been, we've been attending a lot of online funerals. Oh. So. Sadly, through COVID. But I mean, yeah. uh, in online well, gaming. Well, we're that age. You know, mm. people are dying off all the time. Mm. 